praise you, Lord. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord. We thank you, Lord, because you continually speak to your church, Father, Lord. And we thank you because, Lord, you said that you had saved us from your judgments, Father, Lord. And we praise and thank you because you are holy, Lord, and you require holiness. Knowing that we couldn't be holy, Lord, that no matter how hard we tried, Father, Lord, our sinful nature, our want to serve ourselves, always won out. So you sent a sacrifice for us, Lord, that we could put on that righteousness instead of our own, Lord. That we could choose to follow you, Father, Lord, instead of trying to live up to the law that we couldn't, Lord. And that by your wonderful gift of grace, Lord, we are saved. Lord, I pray, Lord, as we come around your word, Lord, as once again, we, Lord, we look at reasons, Lord, why you love us and why we should love you back, Father. I pray encourage your congregation. Speak to them, Lord, and let these be their words and not my words, Father, Lord, but yours. So speak in your mighty name, Father. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, could you please with me turn with me to Matthew 22? Seem to be in the mood to miss a word out of every sentence this morning. I don't know. I don't know. Some interference, I think, in the in the microphone. Matthew 22. If you're unsure, that's the New Testament. If you haven't got a Bible with you, then go and stay in a hotel and steal one. Yes, yes. (laughs) And starting at verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite it to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom were found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, He saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now you might say that it's quite appropriate at this stage in our Summer of Love series that we will discuss a marriage feast, especially as we've got our own marriage coming up ourselves. But I assure you, friends, that when I felt the Lord giving me a series of messages, and in in essence it was a series of titles, the messages were yet to come, um, I felt the Lord telling me to do two weeks on the marriage feast before I even knew that this was Lynn's marriage weekend. You might believe me or you might not believe me on that. But... (laughs) 
It's because the Lord's timing is impeccable, I think. And through a marriage, we understand something a little bit more. You know, I was asked this week why Christian groups seem to give homosexuals a hard time or why it's wrong or it's seen wrong within the church. Because it's easy to shout and make statements and hold banners up. But when you get to know somebody of that persuasion, you realise that they aren't green-eyed monsters with three arms and legs and tentacles and baby eaters and all of these things. In general, a lot of people are nice human beings. And when you see them and you think, oh, they're normal people, they're very nice, why is it something that God is against? Why Why is he against it? And I agree that homosexuals shouldn't be singled out as a special subset of sinners because, friends, all sin is wrong. Fornication is wrong. That, and I had to understand that because I didn't know what that meant for a long time. But it means to, to sleep with someone when you're not married to them. It's equally as bad in the Lord's eyes. In fact, all sin is equally as bad because the punishment is always the same. You know, I did this three ropes trick with a youth group where they listed out three different things. And the fact is, friends, stealing a Mars bar or breaking into the Bank of England may not seem the same thing, but the reason that they're saying to God is because the punishment for the smallest thing is the same, and that is death, and then the judgment of God. So the answer why homosexuality and fornication are considered to be sin, the reason that they're singled out is because of what the marriage ceremony represents, and actually what a marriage symbolically means to God. Anything else is a perversion of that. And it's clear, because we've been talking about it for weeks, that the wedding itself is the relationship between the Lord Jesus, who is the groom, and the bride of Christ, who is, of course, the church. And so that's how we understand the relationship. That's why the Lord looks upon these things as sin. Because they are a perversion of the symbolism. And as we look tonight at some of the things that Moses did, we will see that that is very important to God. The symbolism makes this. Because the relationship between the couples, the roles and responsibilities, and even in the fact of the union, when the two become one and their offspring are the two genetic parts connected together to make one of that relationship. Yet even though marriage itself, in our terms, is a symbol of this divine union, it's a poor shadow of what we will have when we are married to the Saviour. No matter how good or bad your wedding was, I don't know if you had a good or bad wedding, my wife was half an hour late to my wedding. Mine didn't start very well. And a pastor behind me going, how am I going to encourage him when he comes back? It doesn't matter how good or bad the marriage is we will have a better relationship with the Lord. It will be more significant than anything, any of the good points that you've had down here, and anything that we can have with a human partner. Song of Solomon 2.8 puts it like this. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping on the mountains, skipping on the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He looks forth at the windows, peering from the lattice. 
And my beloved spoke and said to me, rise up, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. How the Lord called us out. He called us out. My beloved, my loved one, come out to me. How many people on this earth long to hear those words just from somebody. I love me. Somebody just loved me. And they sit alone in their houses. Not so long ago, there was a story of a young girl who was found in front of her TV, which had been on for three years, and she had been dead in front of it for three years. Aged 22. A young girl, a student. Yet she was, nobody cared enough to know that she had been missing for three years. Nobody had even gone to turn the telly off or complain about the noise. And the nearest that they knew was when the smell started to spread out of the house. Three years that young girl sat in her house decaying. People are alone. But what has probably not escaped your attention is from this parable that the bride is not mentioned in it whatsoever. So today we're not talking about the bride, but we are talking about the wedding feast itself. This parable is about the guests and it's about the father of the, the groom. It gives us an insight that the idea of a wedding feast is not a new thing to the church, but it was an expectation all through the Old Testament. Isaiah and Zechariah prophesied of a great wedding feast with the Lord afterwards. Just to mention a few. There was an expectation. And you know, in the Jewish culture, particularly at this time, wedding feasts themselves were great events. They would last a week long. The young married couple themselves would be given a year where their friends and their family would pay all of their bills for a year. Imagine that. I wish I had that for a wedding present. And they would be exempt from any kind of military service to give them that one year. Our wedding in Jewish times was the greatest of festivities. And we read, obviously, of the wedding at Cana, how great the festivities were. Properly managed, planned, an invitation to it was something that was great and everybody desired. And this teaches us this great spiritual truth that the entrance to the marriage feast with the Son of God is by invitation. You couldn't have any gate crashes. It had to be by invitation, especially because everything was provided. And that those who were present were invited to attend and that they chose to honour this invitation. Friends, it teaches us this, that the church are both the guest and the bride at the wedding feast. We hold both positions equally and dual. But let me not get ahead of ourselves. The parable begins with this. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who made a marriage for his son. This parable and a number of others in Matthew begin by advising that the subject of the parable is a description of the kingdom of heaven. But what is the kingdom of heaven that we might understand it? Why should it be something that we desire or we experience? And I spent quite some time studying this before I came to you. It's a subject that's vast and wonderful. And it is something that's magnificent. It's somewhere that Jesus went 
to prepare a place for us. And at the same time, it's the place that we inhabit now. The kingdom of heaven. It isn't a place that you can touch until the coming of Jesus. It isn't a place that you feel until the coming of... It is a spiritual place that dwells within our hearts. It is a kingdom that unites you with me and you with one another and each one of us with God and every one of us as believers on the face of the planet. We are connected that we are all citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Not great British citizens or citizens of Wales or citizens of anywhere else. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven first and foremost because every other kingdom will fail no matter how good the leaders no matter how spiritual the person they are still kingdom of men only the kingdom of god will stand and we know that from the prophecies of daniel when at the end of that statue with all the different kingdoms the great rock came and smashed the kingdoms and grew into the holy mountain that rock being christ jesus that mountain being the kingdom of heaven when we look at the sermon on the mount that jesus did and we study all three chapters not little bits like people like to do and they pull a bit out here or we'll look at the lord's prayer or we'll look at this but study it in its entirety as jesus gave it to people we understand that it is one great manifesto of the kingdom that when we learn the application of the kingdom to ourselves, it teaches us some amazing things. First of all, how we may enter the kingdom of heaven via the narrow way. It's not the broad way of the world, but the narrow way. That the moral code that we as citizens in heaven must live by, it's one that exceeds the moralism of the Pharisees, those who said it was all outwards, but instead it teaches us that it's an internal moral code. It's not about how good you look to other people, it's how you look to God. And God sees the heart. He sees everything that's inside us. And our actions are judged by the motive. Not by what you did, but by the motive of what you did. Whether the motive was selfish or the motive was spiritual. And where our outward religious observances, those of good works, prayer and fasting, are governed by why we do them. Not by doing them. Why we do them. And that our inheritance is not reliant upon our religious observances, but on this acknowledgement that we are not worthy of them, making the poorer our state more glorious in our master's eyes. Psalm 110 teaches us the kingly creed of our Lord Jesus, the king of the kingdom of heaven. As it says, my Lord said to my Lord, it teaches us that the kingdom is ruled fairly. It is divinely read by a loving king who requires utter submission from every one of us that he rules. And that he came first as Ben Ephraim, the suffering servant, but that he will return as Ben David, the Lord of war, the conquering king. Friends, he doesn't ask that you accept him as ruler. The earth is already his. You can accept him or you can reject him, but it makes no difference. The Lord is Lord of all. And it says in that he asks that each one of us, born of the morning womb, that the Jew of our youth, we be willing and submissive and allow the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to rule in our hearts. 
that he makes the decisions for us, that he chooses the best path for us, that we make him king in our hearts. And then the rest of Matthew's parables teaches what the kingdom of heaven is like by comparing it with everyday occurrences and items to be described. Then finally we read in Matthew 5, 3, and we see how we might qualify to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word used for blessed here is very special. It is makrios. It doesn't mean somebody who's happy because they're poor in spirit. And we might think that we get blessed by different things. But it's someone who is blessed by God. Yet it's taken further because many Greek scholars have found in other Greek words, particularly the works of Homer, that this one word, makrios, in those is translated as this, as one who is happy because he has assurances of his immortality. Friends, when you have a relationship with Christ Jesus, when you have accepted him as saviour, you are immortal. And that's not to say that you will live on forever in this body, but that that you are. Your soul and your spirit will live on and will not die. And we are blessed and happy in the presence that when we realise we can't do it by ourselves, then at that moment in time, we realise we need Christ Jesus. And we are happy because we are made immortal and we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The minute we realise we can't do it, not that we can do it. Or what must I do to be a Christian? What must you do to be a Christian? Realise you can't do it. And then you accept Jesus as saviour. That's who it applies to. The poor in spirit. And their reward is the kingdom of heaven. You know Jesus differs from those who say. You must attain. Because here Christ bestows. He doesn't say you must attain. He bestows. And what do we do to qualify? Well, we become aware of our spiritual state and we understand we're spiritually poor and then seek after God. So back to this parable. Another explanation of the kingdom of heaven. Reading here, we see that this parable tells us that the kingdom of heaven is in fact a wedding ceremony that is continually going. So it's not a week long. This one's been going a little longer. And let me prove that to you. First of all, verse 3 says, He sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they would not come. The first call went to the wedding guests who were already invited. These are the ones having been given a pre-wedding invite. It is the custom in Jewish weddings that first you send out a written invitation to a wedding. You send that out to everybody when the bride and the bridegroom become betrothed. And that is a promise to one another. We might say similar to being engaged, but it is a lot more of a lock than being engaged in the sense that even though the wedding wasn't finalised, and that's not something that the groom or bride would have anything to do with, but something that the parents of both would have to do with, the bride and groom just had to turn up. Everybody else dealt with everything else. That only the wedding wasn't finalised, but as far as the groom and bride were concerned, they were now practically married. They were not open to the intentions of others. They could not be gazumped, as we say in the housing market, or given a better offer by somebody else. 
they were now considered. The wedding had not taken place, but they were set aside for one another. On their parents or their elder brothers made arrangements on their behalf. Friends, we are betrothed to Christ Jesus. Not yet wed, but promised and intended that we should be kept spotless and pure. And that he has kept himself spotless and pure for us. Betrothed together. And this betrothal could take time. It's primarily called the time of the preparation of the groom. And sometimes could take many years. When the groom was ready, men would go out to verbally invite those who had originally been given the written invitation. Servants would be sent out to say, now the time is ready. Please come to the wedding. The food's ready. To refuse an invitation was a great insult, especially because the food would now be cooked. And as this was from a king, it was practically treason to refuse the invitation. The second calling then in verse 4, it says again, he sent out servants saying, tell those who are invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. This time they have moved from the groom being ready to the first feasts. The word used here for dinner is ariston. And on and on and Ariston. Which means the early meal or breakfast. Now, we used to three or more meals a day, more possibly, but three meals at least a day, that didn't happen for, for a long time. Most in that culture would only have two meals in a day, the early meal and the late meal. And the early meal, the word here is breakfast or lunch. It was customary in the wedding feast that before the ceremony was to start, the invited guests had their first meal of the day with the groom because the wedding feast always took place at the evening feast. So this is, we've moved from the groom being ready to the first feast. Then finally, we have the wedding feast. In verse 8, it says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they who were invited were not worthy. The guests would wait with the groom as the bride now prepared herself. It is up for the bride to prepare herself. And soon the wedding ceremony and the feast will all be ready. Everything is ready. We are waiting for the bride to prepare herself. And next week we will talk about that. But what this shows us is that the kingdom of heaven or the time frame in which the kingdom of heaven inhabits is like the Jewish wedding feast customs. At three occasions, the guests are called, each as the groom got himself ready. So what does that mean for us? It doesn't really take that much, I suppose, to link these to three periods with those of Scripture. First of all, the invited guests were those who were called by the old covenant. The Lord said in Genesis 17, 8, I will give the land to you in which you were a stranger and to your seed after you all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. You know, a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday night, we talked about this odd ceremony that Abraham had to scatter all these carcasses about and then God went round them in a figure of eight while he slept. And these are the things that you look at scripture and you go, what on earth is going on and why is that in there? And the reason is, friends, it's a legal contract. Although signing was probably easier than scattering dead carcasses about and walking through them whilst reading it out. Because Abraham slept through it, it made it an unconditional because there was no part that he had to do. It was a promise of always. Their invitation was given from the beginning 
that Abraham said, you are invited to this. I will give it to your seed, to yours by inheritance. Yet the parable teaches us that even though the Lord unconditionally makes a covenant with these people, they can choose to ignore it. Being invited to a wedding isn't hard. You're all invited to a wedding. Your main duty is to turn up. That's all we've got to do. All we've got to do is turn up and look nice. You turn up and somebody else feeds you. That's always good. And at some point during the ceremony, we all have to be quiet. But that's all we have to do in a wedding. It isn't hard. The hard bit's for everybody else. But as the guest, all you have to do is turn up. Yet these people chose not to turn up for free food in a time when people starved. They chose not to turn up to a feast held by a king. They chose not to turn up. Yet at the first invite... In verse 3, the people ignored the invite. Now we know from scripture it's because they chased after other gods. They ignored the first servants, which were the prophets, the good kings that we read in the Old Testament. And Job 35.10 gives us why. It says, none, but none says, where is God my maker, who gives song in the night? None of them did. They all ignored the invitation. They just presumed it would always be on offer. And they ignored it when they were first called. The next servants, the word he has used, other servants, this time are ridiculed and mocked. But they're also attacked and killed by those who reject the very notion of a king over their place as stewards. They were stewards and we want to keep control of things. This very clearly points towards the time of Jesus. These other servants were John the Baptist. The 70 when they were sent out. And even the ministry of Jesus. As the children of Israel were called once again to the wedding feast that they were invited to from the beginning of time. Yet they still ignored it. Not ignored it. This time they tried to put everybody out of the picture. And they killed Jesus. And they killed John. Because they wanted themselves to hold on to the power as stewards. So the Lord made war on them. We know that in AD 70, the Romans, under Hadrian, Hadrian of war fame, laid siege to Jerusalem. And he destroyed it, and he scattered the people, and they did not return until 1948. 2,000 years in exile because of that. Now the invite went out to others, those who were not worthy. Friends, you were called from the highways and the byways Matthew 22 9 says therefore go into the exits of the highways and as many as you shall find invite them to the marriage so the servants went out into the highways and gathered together as many as they found both good and bad and the wedding was filled with the reclining guests you know today you and I can give praise and thanks to our king because we were invited to the wedding feast. That today is what we can take away from it. That is the message. We were invited to the wedding feast. You can't come without an invitation. Yet it went out to every single one of us. And there was no qualification for that invitation. The Lord invited you. All we had to do was meet with his servants. 
And really, that's all we need to think of when we praise the Lord. That today, when we come around the worship and when we, we worship God this evening and when we worship God this week to remember this, we were invited to this divinely appointed feast from the beginning of time, not because of anything that we did, but the Lord loved us and he sent his servants out into the highways and the byways and he pulled us in regardless of our state and he said, you are invited to this most glorious of feasts where I will provide absolutely everything for you. Today I wonder if I can give you this new reason, which really isn't a new reason, as Jeremiah prophesied. But this shall be the covenant that I will cut with the house of Israel. After those days, says Jehovah, I will put my law into their hearts and write it in their inward parts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That was the covenant promise that God made with us. Another unconditional promise, and it is clear that the invite itself are the unconditional promises of God, given to each and every one of us. Unconditionally, we were invited. Yet the qualification wasn't inheritance, but that the Lord searched us out. You know, the term highway and byway here actually means crossroads. And I think for all of us that have accepted Jesus in our lives, we could probably honestly say that at the time we accepted Jesus in our life, we were at a crossroads of our mind, of our existence, of something that was happening. It is no mistake of words that we used here. That is where God meets us. At the crossroads of our lives, he has sent his servants to meet you and invite you to the wedding feast. And no matter what is going on in your life, at that crossroads, you can meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he invites you to attend his wonderful feast. Friends, he came to seek, sort us out. I know I said this last Sunday evening, but what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it. And the answer to that, friends, is none of us would do that. Not one of us would be silly enough to leave 99 sheep behind, go after the one and come back and find the 99 have been eaten, stolen or taken away. But God chases after the one. God comes after the one. Friends, when we talk about revival, we talk about the church bringing in the unsaved, we have got to stop thinking in the thousands and think of the one because God thinks in the one. Why? Because it says this. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner who repents more than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Ah, celebration in heaven for your salvation. Do you feel loved, friends? We should. It says in this parable, the good and the bad were called. And this is not in terms of righteousness. Because, friends, none of us are righteous, not one. It's not in terms of righteousness. But it's in terms of good and bad in the eyes of your peers. You know, one of the legal requirements for a wedding is that the doors have to remain open. Not literally open, but that anybody can enter into a wedding. Purposely so that they can object. Let me encourage any of you that's thinking of a funny joke. It's not funny. Keep your hands to yourselves. But that's the reason. But the fear is that when you leave the door unlocked, well, anybody is allowed to enter. Nobody is allowed 
to be refused entry. Everybody has to be allowed entry. Well, what if somebody comes in who's drunk? What if somebody who comes who's highly fueled upon drugs? What if somebody comes in who just wants to beg or take all the food? Well, all of a sudden, we're all the way through the service on tenterhooks, hoping this person doesn't start screaming out or yelling or doing something during the service that would ruin it. But what's wonderful is, is that no matter what you've done in your past, no matter what you have done, the Lord calls the good and the bad in the eyes of your peers. There is no qualification for entrance into heaven. No qualification. He will call the good and the bad. It doesn't matter what people say about you. You don't come here because you're worthy of it. None of us are. You come here because the Lord Jesus loves you. And he went out to the crossroads of your life and invited you in and said, come and dine with me. As he said to Zacchaeus, I will dine with you tonight and your life will be utterly changed. It says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that none should perish, but that all may have eternal life. You know, the thing about this scripture is, is we have to remember in pattern prophecy, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, it's called uh, the Midrash, but all prophecy, all scripture is pattern. It has its fulfillment at the time. When Jesus was talking, he was talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees saw themselves as the upper class religious leaders. They were the ones who were the invited guests who rejected God, and they did. At that time, during the Passion Week, they had already made plans to kill Jesus. They rejected him. But who did accept Jesus? Well, the lower classes, the farmers, the fishermen, the tax collectors. They had accepted Jesus, the ones in the highway and byway. So we have an explanation of it at the time. There's a final explanation, which is the explanation I've shared with you today, which is that it goes through all of time. The wedding feast, the kingdom of heaven has stood through all of time and that the groom has been preparing himself. But friends, now the bride is getting herself ready. But it also has a continual fulfillment through time, individually in your life. You are the invited guest. You're the invited guest from the beginning. Because with the new covenant, you were invited. By John 3.16, it says that none should perish, but that all may have eternal life. All of us were invited, but we reject the invitation. Many reject the invitation. And the Lord invites you. You ignore it once. You ignore it twice. Maybe you've ignored it many, many times. But there will come a time when you cannot anymore ignore it. And it is too late for you. Does God condemn you or do you condemn yourself? The answer, friend, is you condemn yourself because the Lord has done it all. There is no qualification of it to realise the poor state of your spirit. And if we can do that then, we are invited guests, able to attend that wedding feast. The invite has gone out. The Lord wants you there. It is a great honour, friends. Don't turn it down. And yet, it ends with this curious case of the man with the wrong clothes. Not the wrong trousers, but the wrong clothes. 
And the king coming in to look over the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on the wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king here looks over each one of his guests, examining them to see their hearts. And in one, he saw that he was clothed incorrectly. And because of this, he was cast out. You know, I often looked at this when I was young and wondered how he'd even got in. But the answer to this, friends, is the invitation is freely given to each one of us. And most of you know it's not a secret that in Eastern weddings, you were provided with the right clothes to come in. You were given garments that were cool, that were smart, so that the garments of the day, because people didn't have wardrobes full of clothes, they had one set of clothes. More often than not, they would be sewed into those clothes for the winter and they wouldn't be coming out of them till March. They would stay in them. They wouldn't be brought off or watched. Anything like that. Pretty smelly affairs, one might say. Covered in lice and so on. So when you went to this wedding, you were given a new garment. Friends, why would you want to stay in the old garment if you were given something that was new? And this being a kingly affair, the garments would have been wonderful. Yet this person came to the wedding invitation. He accepted what Jesus offered for him, but he decided to reject the garments that he'd been given. He literally rejected them and decided he was going to sit down in his smelly work clothes (laughs) where he had worked in the Middle Eastern sun and stayed and slept in the same garments and washed in them and done, oh yeah, just pleasantness all over. You know... The king offered us pure, spotless garments, robes of righteousness, white robes, paid for by his blood. That's what it teaches us in scripture. Why would you try and wear your own righteousness? Friends, none of us, none of us stand here, and especially not me, to say, look at me, how wonderful my life is. Because, friends, I am not an example of anything other than that I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. And any righteousness I have is because of him. Why? Because all I want to do is serve myself and please myself. And it's because I love the Lord. And it's because the conviction of that comes upon me and I say, no, I must not do that. Because it offends my God, my beloved. Without that, friends, there's no reason. I would come into church and stand here and say, well, you know what, I'm quite good at drama. I can play the drums. I can, I can publicly speak and I can do all these things and that's, that's what I'm coming for. And none of that's any sense in anything, friends. My righteousness is as filthy rags. And as we all know, that the word means menstrual rags. Filthy rags. Friends, Many people try and come into church because they think they're good enough for it. But church is for those who aren't good enough. And that's all of us. Everybody was called. But from those called, few will choose to come. So what we see here is the likeness of the kingdom of heaven. It's that the Lord made several attempts to call the invited ones. And that he also calls those who were at crossroads of their life, both the good and the bad. But he called you and I and gave us this unconditional love and this unconditional invite. 
You know, friends, I showed you at the beginning that the Beatitudes teach us the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven. Not those who think they're worthy of it. None of us are worthy of it. But that's the beauty of it. We who were once enemies of God became friends and invited guests to his love feast. For all that we have looked at, that Christ is our beloved, that he inhabits the hearts of those who are saved, that he calls them the temple of God, ready always to hear their prayers, and that his word describes his divine nature, that we might know him intimately. Today, what I wanted to show you is that we came from a a darker past. And it didn't matter what your past was. It didn't matter what people thought of you. And it didn't matter what you did because Christ Jesus saved you and loved you and invited you to his love feast that we might know him more intimately. The kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. Yet the ceremony of this wedding, the wedding itself is still to come as the bride gets herself ready. Next week, we shall look at this great subject, the bride preparing herself for her husband let's pray father we thank you for your word lord and we praise and bless you lord we thank you lord because unconditionally you sent your servants lord to invite us lord at many different times in our life lord you did and i pray that we would not ignore this invitation father but choose to accept you lord i pray bless your congregation Show them, Lord, that you have always loved them, Lord, that you called them out, Father, Lord, that you chased after the one, Lord, that you rejoiced in heaven over them, that once again, Father, we might know that you are worthy of our affections, Father, you who first loved us. So bless, I pray, as we go. Be with us in fellowship and bring us safely back. In your mighty name, Father. Amen.